Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, Ellen Zentner with us with Morgan Stanley. Ellen, we've got a lot of focus on the American labor economy, but I want to get your call because you've been so good about lower GDP. If you take the consumer and X them out, was this a 0% economy in the last 90 days? No, not a 0% economy, but I mean, it's clear that the consumer has been propping up the economy, which is good because it's 70% of our economy. But, uh, you know, economists always like better balanced growth. Uh, We wish the growth wasn't just being driven by, say, the consumer and housing. Um, And I think we will get better balanced growth next year, but that's going to hinge importantly on whether trade policy is less uncertain and global growth is a bit stronger. And I know those are two big ifs, but if you get that, Yeah. yeah, two big ifs. But if you get that, then it's better balanced growth next year, even though slower growth compared with this year. So, Ellen, to be clear, this tug of war between consumption and business investment, you expect to see business investment improve before consumption cracks? Yeah, that's what we're expecting. Um, If it doesn't, then you would be talking about recession. Uh, We're just not seeing that in any of the indicators and certainly not any of the leading indicators. You know, if if businesses uh, crack and start laying off workers, then it doesn't matter how healthy the consumer is, they'll stop spending. Um, but if you get better tone on trade, then you, know, you have to ask yourself, what happens uh, following manufacturing slowdowns that don't lead to recession? And you can see that the ISM starts bottoming and then starts to move up. My guess is probably later this year into Q1, we'll see that it formed a bottom and started turning back up. And so that's a nice thing. But what, what happens in an environment where it doesn't lead to recession, but you still got this undercurrent of incredible uncertainty? Well, eventually, investor, uh, uh, firms have to invest in uh, replacement capital. Uh, just to support even domestic demand. And so you get at least some modicum of business investment. uh, And so that's positive rather than declining investment as we've had this year. Ellen, how difficult will it be to get a clean read on this payrolls report in 40 minutes? Uh, It'll be near impossible. Uh, just because we know how many GM strike uh, workers were on strike. Official report came out, 46,000. But how many downstream manufacturers, furloughed workers, um, or uh, even idled uh, their their production for those weeks of October that the strike uh, carried on? Um, You know, what we do as forecasters is you've got a model. um, You forecast payrolls for that month. There's nothing that suggests payrolls were very soft over the month. And then on the back end of that, you shave off the number that you think would be associated with the GM strike. And that's how we come up with our number of around 95,000 for private payrolls. You add the strikes back into that, uh, and you've got something around 150 private payrolls. Nothing really pointed to a deterioration in labor growth. Consumers still very upbeat about the uh, labor market in October. Initial jobless claims would suggest that the knock-on effects from the GM strike were not that large. I mean, the striker, the striking workers cannot file jobless claims, yeah. but other workers that are affected can. And jobless claims were still extraordinarily low during the survey week. So. That's why there's nothing fundamental there that says it's a horrible labor market. You're just going to have an ugly-looking number 
because of GM. And I'm glad that Chair Powell addressed it in his Q&A uh, th- this week. Um, yeah. He doesn't see – he would not have seen the full employment report, but he would have seen the manufacturing segment of it because okay. uh, they have to have that to put out the Federal Reserve uh, industrial production report. Ellen, I'm wondering about hourly earnings. The expectation on the survey is 3%, uh, and that's up from 2.9% in the prior reading. Average hourly earnings expected to be higher as well. Uh, What do you take away from that? What do you need to see to sustain uh, the strength in the consumer? Yeah, hi, Lisa. So it is, is, um, uh, you know, how many jobs are we creating? Are wa- is wage growth holding up? Uh, what kind of uh, financial market income are we getting? I mean, the, the top income quintile represents 40% of all consumer spending. And they can, at times, spend out of that increased wealth. But labor market income is the overall overarching driver. And you've got slower job growth and wage gains that aren't picking up materially. And so we've had, uh, you know, we've got... Uh, I wouldn't call it weak, um, but less of a firm backdrop for consumer spending just from labor market income. And that's one reason why we expect spending to be slower uh, going into 2020 compared with with this year. But that's not saying anything terrible, right? We got about 2.6% growth in consumer spending this year. That's incredible. And mostly from lower interest rates. Next year, you don't drop interest rates further, but you still maintain that support. But job growth continues to slow. And so that does mean less support for consumer spending. We're expecting around 2% consumer spending growth in, in, in 2020. If we get that, it's very unlikely that we get a recession. Well, let's turn to the Fed and what it means for the Federal Reserve. There's a debate at the moment, Ellen, as I'm sure you know, that the benchmark for further easing is now a material reassessment of the outlook at the Fed. That's the benchmark for another cut. Have you got an idea of what a material reassessment of the outlook actually is? Yeah, when I think about it, I just think about, well, well what are the positive things that, that Chair Powell and the Fed keep pointing to? Jobs, 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 consumer, consumer, consumer. And, uh, and, and the, the two are linked, right? So you got to watch initial jobless claims. If that trend, so that's four-week moving average, so we're not looking at natural disaster effects, we're not looking at holiday effects. When that starts trending higher, yeah. you could pretty much put a timestamp on how much longer uh, the expansion will last. And so that's, that's something that they certainly would okay. be watching closely. The, the number of thing, Ellen, what's so important here is everybody trots out the jobs cla- uh, claims as, a, as an optimist thing 99.825 percent of my mail doesn't agree with a vector of jobless claims a huge part of america is feels they're underemployed good morning david blanche flower at dartmouth or they feel uh, that they're not participating in all this good news at 1.9 percent gdp i mean today's jobs report is it really a picture of america yeah, I think it's a picture of America because the jobs report, if you look into the unemployment uh, numbers, you've got you've still got a high amount of folks that are underemployed. You've got some better unemployment rate numbers uh, that are that are partly reflecting simply people leaving the labor market. Um, but I would caution here that when you Please. look at a lot of those metrics, underemployment metrics, they're no worse today uh, than they have been in prior expansions. 
Uh, in fact, they're back at, at lows before the financial crisis. And so they're always going to be underemployed. They're always going to be part-time for economic reasons. They're always going to be discouraged workers. But I don't find that they're particularly higher, much higher amounts than we have had in the, in the past. But to pick up on Tom's point, Ellen, we have seen uh, delinquencies and defaults picking up with uh, credit card receivables, auto loans, people talking about a two-tier economy with the lower income Americans falling behind uh, and increasingly have to access credit. How much does that matter for the overall economy? And it certainly matters uh, on on the specific level, but uh, from an economic perspective. So I think so. there's a socioeconomic uh, uh, story to tell here, uh, and there's an overall economic story to tell here. We always want the consumers to participate across the board, across income groups, and one of the best ways to do that is a very strong labor market. As you know, we can see when we look at delinquencies, and and what I would uh, say is that if you you strip out subprime uh, from the rest of um, uh, credit, uh, you can see that that is the area that's driving up credit card delinquencies, that's driving up auto delinquencies. Now, that is what we should be seeing at this late stage of an expansion. You always see uh, credit dynamics or credit deterioration turn up in the low-income subprime groups first, and then it spreads out to more credit products and then marches up the income chain. So to me, this is something natural that we should be seeing now. Yeah. Now, from a socioeconomic standpoint, no, it's <clears throat> terrible. It's terrible. If you look at rent Rents and health care as a share of overall income, it's an increasing yeah. uh, burden, serious burden for low-income groups. Um, and that just continues to add to income inequality yeah. in the U.S. and is much more long-term and long-lasting issue than just what, what are they going to do over this cycle. This has been wonderful. Ellen Zentner, thank thanks, you so Ellen. much again. Our chief economist, yeah, Morgan guys. Stanley, uh, is well this morning. Why don't you bring in our esteemed guest here? He helped us a lot on Fed Day. Happy to say Jeff Rosenberg joins us now, BlackRock Financial Senior Portfolio Manager. Good morning to you, Jeff. Morning, guys. Your first take, please. That's a strong report. And, you know, this is, you're talking about 3,100 on the S&P. This is, this is all about, you know, what we'll get a little bit later this morning in terms of ISM. But it's about really pushing back hard against this recession risk that yeah. had been, you know, on a top line. We'll see what happens at, at 10 a.m. Market expectations are for that to also rebound. And you're going to have a story coming out of today, which is, you know, good news on the trade. Uh, you know, the Fed, yes, they, they're maybe done cutting rates, but they did what they needed to do. And the economy is showing signs that it doesn't need as much support. You know, and that's a, right. that's a pretty good story. The president needs to jawbone a need for a rate cut or certainly gross accommodation. And let's say politically, Jeff Rosenberg, that goes to 1.9% GDP. With this better than good report, can BlackRock and can you model a higher GDP statistic forward? No, not hugely. You know, we're we're basically at trend, and and the issue is, and again, it goes back to that ISM figure, is that you know the the consumer side of the economy is not 
been affected. And what the jobs report today is about is uh, a stronger than expected report really eases the concern. And the concern has been, will this trade uncertainty, will the manufacturing uncertainty, the decline in, uh, in the business side spill over in the form of decreased hiring that eventually shows up in consumers? That seems to certainly yeah. be uh, diminished as, as a risk. And, and, and right. so, you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's strengthening the outlook for the ability to avoid recession. That doesn't necessarily get you back up to the 3% level because the investment side, the business side, Isn't there? has really been a drag. Yeah, well, Jeff, you and I talked about this on Fed Day. And again, thank you to you and BlackRock for your contribution uh, while we saw the press conference. And you and I talked about one indicator, which is the three-month, 10-year spread. It's come in a little bit in the gloom of the last couple of days. Andrew Hollenhorst at Citigroup, I think, had the same tone you have, which was where whatever series Global Wall Street looks at, we're right now at a tipping point, almost on a, a knife edge, a constructive knife edge. We really don't know which way this is going to tip. Do you agree with that idea? Yeah, exactly. And and just to to frame it, you know, what what's going on is there is a an elevated risk of recession coming mainly from you heard you heard Powell, you know, lay out the reasons, global growth slowing, trade uncertainty, US manufacturing and business confidence declining. And and that is in contrast to the strength, you know, today's payroll report, the revisions, this is about the strength of the consumer, the strength of the labor markets. And so when you see these increases in recession, you know, risk, recession risks, which way does it go? Most of the time it goes back to expansion, but one out of four times it turns into recession. And so that's been the concern. I think today it's going to be about easing some of that concerns uh, and, and, and a risk on feel yeah. to, the, to the market. Jeff Rosenberg of BlackRock, I'm looking right now, I'm wondering if this strength is enough to make this not just a noisy, dismissible report, but something very significant showing uh, ongoing strength, ongoing bringing of workers into the labor force. Well, well, you know, particularly with the revisions, which which gets you back up to the to faster than the the, the most recent pace. It, it you know certainly there was a lot of noise around the strike, and as Jonathan's lead in was saying, there's going to be a lot of kind of apologies for the weak report today. Now it's more a little bit of head scratching of maybe it's not weakening as much as we thought, and a lot of these concerns are are less likely to show up. You know, it's it's a high frequency report, so you know, we'll, we'll move on to the next data release here. But there's certainly a trend here with the pivot at the beginning of the month on trade is really the critical issue here. That's the source of the recession risk. Now, we can debate whether or not that's going to be, for the long run, uh, a permanent state of trade uncertainty. You, you, you can't really argue yeah. that is the case. But, you know, the markets focus on what's right in front of their faces. And what's right in front of their faces is some good data some easing on the trade front, and all of that is supportive of a, yeah, of, yeah. Of a good economic backdrop. John Farrell, does this mean your interview with Mr. Codlow is an hour long? No, unfortunately, it'll only be about 15 minutes. Because trade, trade he's going to want to talk this morning. Jeff, this is why it's so, so difficult right now for market participants. You know that famous line, there's two types of forecasters, those that are wrong and those that don't know. They don't know. And Jeff, I just wonder if we all don't know what's going to happen with the trade story, how can we make a market call when it's so, so crucial to developments into next year? 
Well, yeah, you have to recognize the uniqueness of the of the trade risk in that it is inherently political, which means nobody knows. There's no distribution. You, you can't really predict it. So you have to build in the uncertainty into your portfolio allocation, your process. That's what we do. Uh, and then you just have to be able to react to the change in the environment. And that's what's going on in the markets. That's why October basically is back up uh, across markets is because they're reacting to the change. And, and, and the market will be highly reactive if there's a change to the negative. Much as we've seen in the pattern on the trade negotiations, they're hot, they're cold. You can't really predict it, but it certainly is the driver right now moving markets. Jeff, before we let you go, just a word on the markets in the bond market right now. Where's the team at BlackRock really focused? So we're focused on this this recession risk notion and, and, and how do you build portfolios in that kind of environment. And, and it's about resilience. You, you, you can't deny that there is a late cycle aspect to our markets. There is a heightened sense of recession risk. Again, today, yes, high frequency, that's going to take some of those risks down. But the stance of where we are in the bond markets, as Tom was asking before, you know, it's on a knife's edge. And so when you're in that kind of yeah. environment, bond investors, you know, we, we, we have to play defense. That's our job in the portfolio. Yeah. So that's what we're concentrating on. Jeff, thanks so much. Greatly appreciate your effort with us this on Fed's Day, Fed Day with Jeffrey Rosenberg of BlackRock and here today on a better than good jobs report. We are right now just moments away. Jonathan Farrow, Tom Keene sitting down with Richard Clarida, vice chairman of the Federal Reserve. They will be breaking down the strong jobs numbers, getting a look at what that means for the Fed going forward. Right now, John Farrow, Tom Keene. Joining us now for a Bloomberg Television and Radio exclusive interview, I'm pleased to welcome to the show Richard Clarida, Federal Reserve Vice Chairman, and my surveillance radio co-host Tom Keane, making his debut on this set as well. Good morning to you, gents. It's good to see you. And it's a change. This is different than you and I expected two hours ago. It's a solid jobs report that we thought we might have to make some excuses for maybe yeah. 60 minutes ago. It comes out a lot better. And I think what will be great here, maybe I'll take a broader tack with the Vice Chairman. I know there's lots coming off of Michael McKee's first question question at that Fed press conference the other day. Vice Chairman, thank you again for joining you us bet. Uh, here at, at Bloomberg. I want to go back to a word identified with the Vice Chairman of the Fed, and that is solid. Yeah. We just had a more than solid jobs report. The President of the United States tweeting out about it. A few days ago, he tweets out, maybe we need lower rates. Define for us as a starter, what is the new solid that you see into next year? Well, this was certainly a very solid labor market report, as we said in our statement. You know, we have ongoing growth in the economy. We have inflation near our objective. So the economy is in a very uh, good place. You know, growth is, as we've characterized growth as moderate uh, right now, the, <clears throat> the global economy has been slowing, and, that, and that's a factor. But the U.S. economy is very resilient, uh, and, the, and these are good numbers. Both the GDP number uh, and the labor market number surprised a bit on the upside. So that's a good thing. Are those numbers, those GDP numbers, are they politically acceptable to this nation? It's great for economists like you to talk about 1.9 percent as a center tendency, but is that politically acceptable? Well, I'm not going to get into the politics, uh, Tom. Our job at the Fed, we have a dual 
mandate, maximum employment price stability. We've made some adjustments in our policy rate. We think they are and will continue to give significant support to the uh, economy. And we're, we're, we have mm-hmm. a favorable outlook for the economy. John? Well, let's talk about the outlook and the balance yeah. of risks around the outlook right now. How would you describe the balance of risks around that outlook, Rich? Well, John, I would say for most of the year, the balance of risk had probably been tilted a little bit to the downside. Not so much because of the U.S., but we're part of the global economy. We've got a global slowdown. There are some pretty powerful global disinflationary pressures. And as we said in July and uh, in, in September and this week, we felt it was appropriate to make some adjustment in our policy to provide some insurance or cushion against really sort of a softening global economy. You know, you saw that at the IMF a week or so ago, downgrading the global outlook. So we think the economy's in a good place. We think monetary policy's in a good the place. The balance of risk, though, still tilted to the downside? I would say somewhat, yeah. Looking at the economic assessment of the Federal Reserve Chairman, we're trying to understand what a material reassessment of the outlook would be to reach that benchmark for another move. Can you give us some clarity on that? What is a material reassessment of the outlook? How much data does one need to make that assessment? Well, first of all, let's remember what is the baseline outlook. The baseline outlook is for ongoing continued growth, a very solid labor market and inflation near uh, our uh, objective. Obviously, if we saw accumulating evidence that we were missing on employment, we were missing on inflation, and we were missing on the growth needed to sustain full employment and price stability, then we would have to factor that in. We will be data dependent, but we're saying our baseline outlook now is, is policies in a good place. The next meeting is a live meeting? Uh, every meeting's alive. We're meeting. just trying to figure out what okay. the next meeting actually is. Do you need a month of data to take another look at this? Do you need three months of data to take another look at this? How long does one well, need? Well, well, Jonathan, we meet eight times a year, and as we indicated, and as we did back in October, if we need to, we can. We have had meetings in between. So yeah, every, you know, we're, we'll just take the data as it comes in. The data comes in, but the fact is, there's an arch debate about two Americas. David Blanchflower up at Dartmouth yeah. talks about the underemployed. It's fine to have models. It's fine to speak as a public voice as you are now, uh, Professor Clarida. But the truth of the matter is there's two Americas. Chairman Powell is addressing this with a more social mandate from the Fed. How do you address in the next year two Americas, one employed, fully employed, and the other really struggling. Well, well, Tom, let me talk about that, because I think Chair Powell has has very effectively conveyed what we at the Fed believe. You know, we have basically one instrument, which is to raise or lower the policy rate. So obviously it's a very complex economy, but what we do know, and we've had these Fed listens events, we've had 14 Fed listens events this year, and what we've heard from those events is the substantial robust benefits of having a fully employed economy, the wage gains at the lower end of the income distribution opportunity. Now Congress has given us a dual mandate, maximum employment and price stability. We have the privilege now to be presiding over time when we're close to full employment and we think there's a real benefit to keeping the economy there. So that's the way we're focused on it. Well, let's talk about that dual mandate. To what degree do you think the FX channel at the moment is hampering your ability to hit it? Well, foreign exchange rates obviously go up and down for a lot of reasons, and, and I'm not going to say too much more about it than that as a, as a Fed uh, official. That the Treasury Secretary... Let me finesse it just a little bit then. Okay. I, I don't want the policy prescription. I just want an assessment, really. To what degree, to what extent do you think the FX channel as it currently stands is curtailing your ability to hit your inflation target? I, 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 would, not, I would not say that that's an impediment to our hitting our inflation target.
We had a news story out here yesterday, a legitimate reported news story on the Chinese response where they demand tariffs be lowered. Can you inform Professor Claret of Columbia University teaching Econ 101? Been a while. Who pays tariffs? Help us with this right now. Let's slow down. Here's this arch issue. My chart of the year is customs collections out three, four, five standard yeah. deviations. Inform all of us, including the president watching right now, <laughs> who, who pays for these tariffs? Well, Tom, I'm not going to get into trade policy, one. Number two, uh, that's a very complex issue. It involves the incidence of the tariff. It involves profit margins. It involves exchange rates. I've not looked into it, and I have nothing for you on that. What we have, though, in the U.S. economy quite clearly playing into all of this is a tug of war between a resilient consumer and weak business investment. Yeah. When you look at that at the moment, is it your outlook that you think business investment picks up before we see a crack in the consumer, or is it the other way around? How should I think about well, that at the well, moment? Well, first of all, John, we don't see a crack in the consumer. I've said publicly in some recent uh, speeches that in my professional career, which goes back more than 30 years, in the aggregate, the U.S. consumer has never been in better shape. Savings rate is high. Uh, there's been deleveraging. Income gains are strong. So we don't see the consumer cracking. There has been a slowdown and a weakening in business investment. That's a complex issue. I think it involves a global slowdown and some other factors. Um, and that's why one of the reasons why the, that we decided in July to provide some modestly more accommodative policy in some sense to try to offset some of those headwinds. We have seen a rebound in housing, so the housing sector is now contributing uh, to growth for the first time in about six quarters. And so you have to look at the whole picture, I think, right. John. What is a hawkish cut? That was a phrase two days ago. Can you enlighten us in that we, we cut interest rates, but there's a hawkish tone to that? Well, How did we get uh, to I, the I, language of hawkish cut? Tom, as you know, I spent decades as a Fed watcher, and if I were still a Fed watcher, I would be commenting on that. I, I can just tell you what we did do. We provided additional accommodation at the meeting, and we indicated then, and I'll say again, we think that monetary policy is who, now in a good place. Who will benefit from that additional accommodation and the timeline that you get from consecutive rate cuts? Well, uh, Milton Friedman taught us that monetary policy operates with a lag. We just put these adjustments in policy in place, and so we would expect to see that begin to impact the economy, uh, you know, beginning in the fourth quarter and, and into next year. Generally, interest-sensitive sectors are going to benefit uh, durable goods uh, in, uh, uh, in particular. Your take, Rich, yeah. uh, and the take of others at the Federal Reserve has been that an ounce of protection is worth a pound of cure. That was the argument when we were in at around 2.5% on the Fed funds rate. Now we've dropped 75 basis points. Yeah. Do you still make the very same argument or do you have a different calculation to make? Well, again, we provided accommodation precisely because we saw some of these headwinds and we thought that a recalibration of policy was appropriate. And as Chair Powell indicated, and I'll restate, uh, I think and we think monetary policy is in a good place. Whether it's the excellence of Stanley Fisher, and I think a lot of people watching Vice Chairman Fisher said, who is that guy? The same thing with you. They don't know the Richard Clarida of dynamic stochastic uh, general equilibrium theory. Maybe that's just as well. It's probably just as well. And a lot of people would say that. The IMF did a meeting in Vienna two weeks ago yeah. where they talked about your work in really? this new phrase of fiscal space, dovetailing fiscal policy in. Do you agree with the central bankers that it's time now on a global basis and even on an American basis to find a fiscal relief to all the burden put on monetary officials? 
You know, Tom, I really don't want to get into fiscal policy other than uh, to say that um, that's really a decision in, the, in our case for the Congress uh, and the president. The way we conduct policy at the Fed is we take fiscal policy as an input into our outlook, and I'll just leave it, leave it at that. Have we engineered a soft landing, Rich? The economy right now, first of all, the, the growth in the economy and the prosperity of the economy is due to hardworking you know, individuals and companies. And so uh, that's really the source of, of, of the current strength of the economy uh, right now. Again, I would characterize the economy as operating you know, in the range of trend growth. There's a range of estimates of trend growth. What we do know is that unemployment rates near a 50-year low. I, let me also say that there's, we've, we saw a good indication on wages in this report. They're picking up. I don't see, we as a Fed don't see wage inflation as a source of concern. It's not showing up in excessive price inflation. And let me say one more thing. The share of income going to labor has increased in the last several years, last three years or so, by about two percentage points. That's not getting enough attention uh, as it deserves. And so as this economy expands and prospers, we do see those gains going to labor. And I think that, you know, that's a positive development right now. In the range of trend growth, that was your earlier response. Yeah. What is the range of trend growth and where do you think trend growth is? Well, you know, we, we have a, a summary of economic projections at the, at the Fed that we release four times a year. There's a range of views on that. I think the current median of the group is 1.7 or 1.8%. Suffice to say, I'm more optimistic on trend growth than the median. Really? Where would you put it? Well, there's a custom, at least among the governors, of not revealing our dots. But let me just say I'm more optimistic than the median. Do you think we can get back to those levels? Well, productivity is a function of not only innovation, but capital uh, investment and skills in the labor force. But I have said, and I, I continue to believe, yeah. I think that we've seen a bottoming. We had a really slow stretch of productivity growth for about a decade, and I think it bottomed out about three years ago. Right, right. And I think that is a positive development. Does the economy lead productivity, or does productivity lead the economy? You know, that's the $64 billion Did I do okay question. There, Professor? That's the $64 billion yeah, I question. I go up to 202 next year. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you this. Mid-cycle is all the vogue. I mentioned hawkish cut. I yeah. knew you wouldn't give me an honest answer on that. Give us a mind. The British go short-term, medium-term, long-term. What in God's name is mid-cycle? What does that signal to our viewers and listeners worldwide? Well... Let me focus on what late cycle is. Late, late, late cycle is you think a recession probability is Thank elevated. You. All right. So and you're we're, not, you're we're not, not late, late We're not late cycle. Let's okay. just say we're not late cycle. Is the mid-90s parallel to what we're experiencing now a good comparison? Good is that useful? I think no parallel is perfect. Circumstances always differ. But I myself in several uh, comments, including in interviews on this station and speeches, have made reference to the, to the 95 and 98 episodes because what they illustrate is that central, once central banks under the leadership of Volcker and Greenspan, once you achieve price stability, it does give the central bank more ability to be nimble within a business cycle to adjust and recalibrate rates. And we saw that under Chair Greenspan uh, in the 90s. Uh, and I think in retrospect, that was a decade-long expansion, and that was certainly a positive uh, support for that. Well said, but we are now near the zero bound, worried about Japanification, yeah. worried about Jan Moen's at uh, uh, um, at J.P. Morgan talking about a vector of the 10-year yield down. Give us some comfort that that dynamics in the 90s can work here so close to the zero bound. 
That's a very good point, Tom. That is a difference from the 90s and that rates were starting from a higher level then. You know, we, we made the decision as a committee in July, September and October, uh, understanding where rates are now and where the economy is, that it was appropriate to vo- provide this accommodation. My, my good friend and colleague, uh, John Williams at the New York Fed, had done some very important work on thinking about how to do monetary policy uh, near the zero bound. And what I've said many times in my professional career going back 25 years is policy has to be forward looking because of the long and variable lags. If you have an opportunity to adjust policy to offset shocks, you should take that advantage of that. And that's what I think we've done. What's the trade off though, Rich? Well, the trade-off is monetary policy is more art than science. It requires judgment. It requires a humble understanding that our models aren't perfect. Um, uh, And you have to put all of that into the mix. But again, just let me say, I'm very happy with where we are now with the stance of monetary policy. You sound pretty optimistic about the U.S. economy. I've got to say, that's my takeaway in the first 15 minutes of this interview. Would that be fair? I, I am an optimist. My mother and father raised me to be an optimist, object- but objectively, the economy is in a good place. This is the longest, this is the longest economic expansion in U.S. history going back to the 1850s. Unemployment at a 50-year low, inflation right. near target. And our focus at the Fed is solely to put in place policies that help to but keep us part uh, of the, in this vicinity. Part of the Clarita charm is you're from huh. Illinois. You've got a different view. Hubbard's from Florida, Clarita's yeah. from Illinois, many others. There's a wonderful geography to our and we're, great... And we're both the sons of public school teachers. Well, okay, we'll go with that as well. Good morning to all the teachers Hi, out there. But I, I'm going to say this right now. There's a different view in the Midwest right now. It's a Midwest flat on its back because of these tariffs. Mm. In agriculture, it's a Midwest flat on its back from manufacturing. You're optimistic, as John mentions. You mentioned the word solid, but it's only solid to a part of America. How can authorities and the Fed drag the rest of America somewhat flat on their back into a better America? Well, Tom, it's a good point. As I mentioned a moment moment ago, the, the, the Federal Reserve essentially has one policy instrument which is to raise or lower the policy rate. It's a big economy, 300 million people, 50 states, uh, and there are a lot of dynamics at play. uh, And we're humble in the ability of our tools to really focus on the overall aggregate uh, uh, economy. I'm obviously cognizant of those concerns and those challenges, uh, but we're just trying to stick and do what we can to contribute to uh, where the economy is right now. Rich, let's explore that optimism just a little bit further. What is it about the current economy that differs from the middle of this year when the rate cutting cycle, the adjustment actually started? What do you take more confidence in now that you didn't see earlier this year? Well, what I would say, John, is we've done the adjustment. I, I, I would be less optimistic about the economy if we had not made those 75 basis point uh, adjustments. And so I think the optimism is a context of where policy is relative to, relative to the headwinds. And I think, I think that's been borne out. Some folks were talking about the consumer is going to turn over or, you know, the labor market. I mean, going into today, how many uh, speculations did we see of a, of a terrible labor market uh, uh, report? So the third quarter data came in on, as a, on you know, on, on the upside surprise. And, and I, and I think you Factoring in what we, the adjustments we've made in policy is, a, is an important part of it. Is this confidence in the economy, though, or in the policy setting? No. I, the, the hard data on the economy is the economy is resilient. Our baseline, and I think shared by many others, is the economy will continue to be resilient, certainly compared to the situation that you see uh, in Europe and in other 
uh, other countries. I mean, it's a, it's a global challenge as well. We kid about Chairman Powell, the central banker of the world. Let me have you be vice chairman, uh, <laughs> a banker to the world uh, right now. The United States must lead with a solid banking system, Bernanke 101. Yeah. The United States must lead with a productif productivity differential. Is that at risk right now with the political turmoil? The headline of the, the, the paper of the New York Times today bringing me back to Watergate of a 70s yeah. as well. Within the stew that we're in, what's the leadership the Fed can provide to get us to 2020 and beyond? Um, again, we, we have a, Tom, we have a very clear, specific mandate from Congress. We don't get into politics. We have, we have our tools and we're trying to use the tools to keep the economy uh, in a very good place. And I'll just leave it at that. Are you finding it's more difficult to adjust monetary policy in an era where rates are so low abroad? It is a factor that you have to consider. We're part, the U.S. is part of a global capital market. Capital flows in and out of countries when rates are, low, rates are low abroad. Capital flows into the U.S. that has implications for financial conditions uh, in, in the U.S. And, and rates are, are low abroad for a reason. And they're low abroad because well, growth is disappointing. And that also has an impact on the U.S. I'm going so to go to leadership again. We spoke, yeah. Bloomberg Surveillance spoke to Barry Eichengreen of Berkeley. The other day is yeah. Archbook Globalizing Capital. Yeah. What is the globalizing message our central bank can do to provide leadership to Corrado, Lagarde, Carney, but more importantly, emerging market bankers as well. What is the to-do list globally for this central bank? Well, that, that, that's an ambitious question. I think what we're focused on is obviously the dollar is a very important part of the global financial system. And I think the most important thing that we can do is to keep, uh, keep price stability as an important part of our, <clears throat> of our goals and achievements. Um, and certainly, we, if we go back to the 1970s, the U.S. was not providing leadership with high and volatile inflation. I think we're wearing them out. Uh, we're going to let him have a sip of his, of his Diet right. Coke just there, I, and he can, I, he can take John, a quick what's drink. so important here, and this is really important, folks, as we speak to Richard Clare, the vice chairman of the Federal Reserve System. There's, John, as you and I cover every day, this path over decades. Marty Feldstein, the late Martin Feldstein, telling me two decades ago about this persistence in Japan. And then it comes over to Europe, and now the, the, the fear, not here, is it comes over to us. Can we talk about current market ops? Why this isn't QE? I get so many people around this table that either scream it's QE, and then they scream it's not QE. Why is this not QE? Well, it's not QE, John. This is really central banking 101. Historically, central banks, well before the QE era, grew their balance sheets with purchases of short-dated treasury bills because there's an as economies grow and prosper, there's an increase in demand for central bank liabilities. And if central banks did not organically grow their balance sheet, that would create a liquidity problem. So this is not QE. QE was really targeting the long end of the yield curve, 10-year treasuries, 30-year mortgages. We're basically just buying T-bills right now and adding liquidity to the financial system. So it's not QE. Are you confident you can continue buying T-bills, reach your objective without coming down further out the curve? Can you do it all through T-bills? That's what we said. We, we, we believe that we can do it through T-bills. We've indicated in the announcement we made on October 11th that we will be adding uh, T-bills to our portfolio at least through the middle of, of mm -hmm. next year, and we're confident that that's the right, right course. Well, at the New York Fed, John Williams and the team there have to manage this on a daily basis. I know you said you don't want to talk about the fiscal dynamics and yeah. that, but do you have a different set of challenges with a $900 billion-plus deficit and the vector of that deficit is you manage the T-bill and further out uh, repo market. 
Tom, I don't think it's a challenge. It's just obviously something that we have to factor uh, in. And under John's leadership, you know, we're, we're certainly on top of that. Richard Clarida, special thanks to the Federal Reserve Vice Chairman. It's good to see you again. As always. Good yeah. to see you, Rich. Thank you very much. The conversation continues on this programme. I'm pleased to say that from the White House, for the view on the job report from the White House, I'm pleased to say Larry Kudlow joins us, National Economic Council Director. Good morning to you, Larry. Morning, Jonathan. Thank you. It was a much better jobs report than people expected. Your assessment, please. Well, look, uh, it was much better. And when you do the accounting across the board, you've got to look under the hood. Actually, it was a 303,000 increase in non-farm payroll jobs. If you go through this, you start with your base case unadjusted, 128,000, but, 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 the prior two months were revised up 95,000. So that gets you to 223. Adjust for the GM, that's 60,000, add that back and add the, uh, the census takers back, you're at 303,000. It's a remarkable number. And I wanna say, it kind of confirms, you and I have spoken about this in recent months, the huge strength in the household survey, which had another big month, 241,000. That often is a leading indicator for the payroll survey. That's what we're seeing. The labor markets and the economy fundamentally are a lot stronger than people think. Uh, here's another one for you that I want to get out. 235, I beg your pardon, 325,000 increase in the labor force. 325,000. Now that's been in a steady uptrend. And it tells us you got a lot of people coming out of the woodwork. They're returning back to the labor force, probably attracted by good wages. You know, the non-supervisory production wage increase, 12 months, three and a half percent. That's better than their managers who are running about three percent. So these numbers are across the board, uh, virtually a blowout number, I think quite unexpected. Uh, don't write off the economy just yet. I'll tell you, it's got a lot of fundamental strength. Really, really decent, Larry, and most people would agree with you. We get the ISM manufacturing in around about six minutes, so maybe and I, you and I can talk about that in just a moment. Let's talk about trade. Reports of a call happening today between U.S. and Chinese trade negotiators. Larry, could you tell us a little bit more about what you'll be discussing on that call? Uh, look at our lead negotiators, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, uh, Trade Ambassador Lighthizer, uh, are, they may at this point they may be talking as you and I are talking. In any event, they're talking with Vice Premier Liu He of China. The trade talks are going very well. If you look carefully at the comments coming out of the official uh, organs, the Finance Ministry, the Foreign Ministry, the Commerce Ministry in China, they're all very upbeat, very positive. They're very productive talks. You know, um, I can't go into deep details, obviously, but, but I can say this. The chapter on agriculture is virtually completed. That's not only the 40 to 50 uh, billion dollar increase in agriculture purchases, but also market openings, lower non-tariff barriers. Very, very important. The financial services chapter is virtually completed. That'll provide 100% ownership uh, for American banks, security firms, insurance firms operating in China. Uh, the currency chapter is virtually completed. Uh, that will provide for 
uh, currency stability uh, with uh, obviously safeguards against manipulation. The um, intellectual property chapter, uh, we've come a long way on that. Uh, I don't think it's been completed. It's still under discussion, but we've made very good progress. The deal is not completed. The deal is not done. There are issues to go on enforcement. That's going to be very, very important. There will be issues on um, uh, forced uh, technology transfer. Very, very important. Those may slip into phase two. But I will tell you, we've come a long way. President Trump himself has indicated a desire uh, to complete this phase one deal. Uh, President Xi has indicated likewise. As you know uh, from your own reporting, there's, been, uh, there's now a new search for a new venue where the two leaders can meet because the Chilean uh, thing, the APEC thing, fell through in Santiago. So we'll see. But again, it is not completed. I'll be perfectly honest about that. But enormous progress, very constructive talks, which are continuing today. Larry, the mood music is much better over the last two months. No one would deny yes. that. Just walk me through the yes. specifics though. What is holding us back in phase one? What's left to be agreed? What's holding you back? Uh, I can't be too specific, uh, as you might imagine. Uh, I'm going to let our brilliant negotiators do their brilliant negotiating. But as I said before, I went through the different chapters. Agriculture chapter looks good. Financial services looks good. Currency looks good. Intellectual property theft much improved. Okay, still much more work to do on forced tech transfer. Uh, and um, enforcement is very, very important, very, very important. And that's what they'll be working on. So I, I don't want to go any further below that surface. All I'll say is we've come further than we were last May when we thought we you know, had 90 percent of the deal. Um, President Trump himself, I believe, yesterday suggested that Phase one would be perhaps 60 percent of what we hope ultimately to get done. But the outlook for phase one is very positive right now. And you can see it again. I encourage people. I know there's a lot of reporting that goes on, picking up snippets here and there. I myself just like to look at the official statements from the key Chinese ministries. Those statements are very positive, Jonathan. The threat of December tariff hikes still on the table, Larry. Well, they're still on the table until this uh, phase one deal is completed uh, or, or, or worst case, not completed. Uh, I don't want to speculate. That's up to President Trump how he's going to handle that. But um, the president has hinted that depending on the process of phase one, he may be willing, I say may be willing, to take a look at the, those tariffs. As you know, we suspended some other tariffs uh, as a goodwill gesture and a negotiating gesture. I think that's all to the good. So I don't want to speculate on how it'll work in uh, December 15th or later. That's all part of these negotiations that are ongoing. I don't want to speculate either. I just want to understand what the concessions are that the U.S. administration want from the Chinese for that December tariff hike to go away. What are the specifics? Well, again, I, I can't repeat the laundry list. As I say, the chapters I mentioned before are all going very, very well. They're all going and very so well, the, but there must be something specific, Larry, that they haven't followed through on to make the threat of December tariff hikes go away. What is it? Uh, I, I can't talk that way. I, I can't go that into that kind of depth. Um, after today's discussions uh, between Mnuchin Lighthizer and the Vice Premier, um, 
perhaps the secretary or the ambassador may wish to reveal that or not. It's not my role to do that. Remember, of course, you have these teleconference meetings. They go on for quite some time. The deputies have been meeting. But, of course, um, all of our trade group, the so-called principles trade group, of which I'm a member, uh, we will report to President Trump, and President Trump's going to make those final decisions. The president makes the final call. We expect he always will. We've reported this week that some of the thornier issues to be down with in, say, phase two, the Chinese just won't budge on, Larry. Are you confident they will? And what gives you that confidence? Um, I do, you know, I don't want to speculate on that, Jonathan, to be honest, because the, the way I look at it, the fact that we're in this phase one is itself a big breakthrough. And to some extent, that was a concession by President Trump. Rather than go for the entire, what you might say, a grand slam home run, better to look at it in segments, in phases. That was a change in the president's thinking a couple of weeks ago. It was recommended to him uh, by the Trade Principles Group. And it came from successful negotiations when the Chinese were here a couple weeks ago. My view on these things is not to try to predict long term. My view is let's stay right here and now and look at what's in front of us on the phase one agenda, which I have done my best to outline to you. Yeah. I don't want to speculate on the long run. I think, look, negotiations, if you've ever been involved with them, good things beget other good things or vice versa. Bad things beget other bad things. The way I see it, and my, I'm doing my best to report this to you without divulging too much, but the, as the mood music is good, the negotiations are going well, you see, here, here's a thought. Let me give you one additional thought. Okay. The official statements from China, I know I mentioned this a second ago, let me repeat this. In the past, in the past, going back, I mean, I've been here almost two years doing this nonstop. Many times we had a, a more optimistic view, but then we would get statements and commentaries from the officials in the key Chinese ministries that suggested not so much optimism. This time around, regarding phase one, please note how optimistic the Commerce Ministry, the Foreign Ministry, the Finance Ministry, and their leaders, how optimistic, how positive and constructive they have been. I use that as a leading indicator, Jonathan. So I don't want to get ahead of this story. I don't want to predict. All I'm saying is the phase one talks, which are here right before us and which represented a change in the entire framework of negotiations, those talks are not complete but they are going well. Well, let's talk about leading indicators. The ISM just out, 48.3, downside surprise, sub 50. Pretty much every industry, 12 out of 18, reporting a contraction in October. Larry, can you see how this tension between the United States and China is starting to bleed into the manufacturing segment of the US economy? Well, look, I think there have been impact, uh, impacts. My own view is I think you know that the impact on the U.S. economy has been minimal. The impact on the Chinese economy has been much, much greater for a variety of reasons, um, perhaps four times as much. Look, on the manufacturing numbers, the market ISM was a better number than this ISM. 
Uh, today's jobs report, by the way, when you adjust for GM, actually showed a 24,000 increase in manufacturing jobs. That's the best number we've had in quite a while. One of our problems, though, Jonathan, is the European recession. Uh, we export a huge volume of manufacturing-related sales to Europe. And Europe, as you know, is virtually in a recession. It's completely flat. That has hurt us a lot. So that and, of course, as we've discussed, the headwinds from severe, severe monetary tightening, uh, particularly last year, uh, I think have hurt that sector. Now, monetary policy, fortunately, has finally turned around. It's moving in the right direction. The target rate has come down to, what, one and a half, three quarters. The yield curve is normalizing. The balance sheet and the monetary base are expanding. So those are pluses. So we've gone from extreme tightness to a um, somewhat more accommodative position. That's good. That's going to help manufacturing. It's going to help everything. Um, the European story is a drag on manufacturing. But my hope here, and again, these jobs numbers, it's 303,000 uh, blowout jobs number today. I think our economy is stronger under the surface than folks think. Yep. Uh, I think business investment is going to be on the way back. I think on trade, where there is uncertainty, I grant your point, um, China looks better. USMCA still looks good. The reports from Capitol Hill are very good on USMCA. Um, Canada and Mexico, obviously, are gigantic markets for our manufacturing, exports, and so forth. So that's going to be very helpful as well. So let's see. Let's play this thing, you know, day at a time, month at a time, and so forth. Larry, most people would say that the European economy is slowing down because of what has happened in China, and what has happened in China is because of the tension between the United States and the Chinese. But you and I could go back and forth on that, I'm sure, for a long, long time. Do you want to deal with a little bit of business with you? Fiat Chrysler and Peugeot announcing a merger this week. Peugeot is owned, 12% owned, by Dongfeng, a Chinese motor corporation. I'm just wondering, has the United States and your administration taken a look at that deal? Uh, not yet. I can report not yet. We will obviously look at it very, very carefully, uh, but not yet. What's the president said? The uh, president has not commented on that deal. Do you think, Larry, it's worth having a look because of the sensitivity around Chinese-owned companies? This would be one of the big Detroit car companies in the United States, part-owned essentially by a Chinese motor corporation because of its ownership of Peugeot. Uh, we'll take a careful look at it. Look, um, we want to do business around the world, providing that it's to our benefit, the United States benefit, I mean, I presume the other country too, but President Trump is here to defend the American economy and the American workforce. So we're not afraid of doing business with international companies, Lord knows. With respect to the Chinese story, we obviously are alert and on guard. Uh, we have to make sure that whatever China business developments occur do not occur to the detriment of our not only our economy, but our own national security. Hence, the idea of having sensitivities. As you know, we have export controls. We have an entity list. And now this automobile deal probably won't be part of that entity list. I, I don't think that would qualify, but I don't want to speculate. That's a Commerce Department decision. Secretary Ross himself will be looking at that, so I don't want to go too far. So I'm just saying we will 
welcome a good deal. We hope it gets more production in the United States, more production in the United States, more factories and workers and employment in the U.S. And with respect to the Chinese angle, we will take a very careful look at it. Hey, Larry, it's always great to catch up with you. Appreciate your time today. I know you've got a busy one over at the White House with the trade talks ongoing with the Chinese. Your National Economic Council Director there, Larry Kudlow, joining us from the White House. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.